Our scripture reading today comes out of Matthew chapter 14. Uh, If you're using one of the uh, church Bibles, it's on page 820. Matthew 14. I'm going to read selected verses from this chapter, beginning with verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it and they went and told Jesus. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked, looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And finally, verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. You know, as we were singing that last song, I I couldn't help but think that's got to be one of the greatest hymns of all time. I mean, it just rips my heart out every time I sing that and. Particularly, every time I sing that, I think about dear, sweet families in our church who have suffered great loss. And uh, you're in my heart right now, and we love you deeply, and we are thankful for God's sustaining grace. Let's take a moment and pray before we get into the text. Father, we are so grateful that Matthew 14 is in the Bible because it gives us a rich reminder that you are present with us. You're in the boat of our suffering and trial. And that you are not far from us. You are near us. And so the desires of our hearts this morning are many for the effectiveness of this word from Matthew 14. And I pray that some will pass from the darkness of sin into the light of life. And I pray that others would be firmly established in their faith and made to taste The glories of the love of God. So come and do more than we can imagine. These these great truths are above me. They are yours. Take over, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many, many things that we can learn from Matthew chapter 14. But one of them is that our worship of Christ... uh, or how well we know and trust Christ uh, will be a reflection of the strength or the intensity of our faith. So the more you know him and the more focused your faith is, the stronger that faith will be. What we believe about Jesus, another way to put it is, will determine how well we worship Jesus. There's an integral connection there. A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, David Platt puts that in his own words, and he says, If we believe Jesus is a good man who did good things for us, then we will honor him as we honor other good men who do good things for us. But if we believe that Jesus is 
majestic, glorious, universal king over all creation, then that belief will be evident in the way that we sing, in the way that we pray, and in the way that we worship him. So our goal then is to to know Jesus more accurately so that we will worship him more meaningfully. And so before we get into this passage, I want to take a moment and I want to tell you kind of where we're going, uh, what direction we're going to take in this chapter. Uh, This is a bit of an organizational challenge, but this is the path that I've decided to take. There are three major events uh, in this chapter. Uh, Number one, John the Baptist is beheaded, verses 1 through 12. Secondly, Jesus feeds the 5,000 plus, not counting women and children, could be 10 to 12,000 people. And then third, Jesus walks on water, uh, verses 22 through 33. And then we have this little healing uh, pericope at the very end. There's this section where Jesus heals many others who are sick. So we're not going to really camp there, but we're going to look at the other three uh, exhaustively. Okay. And so each of these sections shows us something about belief, unbelief, and the Savior that we all need. So... Three points this morning that will guide our thinking. Number one, Herod is an example of what every lost man is like. Number two, Peter is an example of what every Christian is like. And number three, Jesus is an example of what every man needs. Let's begin with Herod, an example of what every lost man is like. This passage opens up with, uh, a, let's just be honest, a historical account, something that really happened um, that is both gruesome and shocking. In fact, it might seem a little surprising to you that it's even in the Bible. If you've never read it, uh, you might be uh, experiencing a little bit of a, wow, this is pretty, pretty, um, e- this is pretty um, uh, expressive language. What, what's going on here? I mean, we have a story about a suggestive dance from a teenage girl that ends up leading, ironically, to the beheading of a prophet of God. Uh, so so the, the story is both violent and sexual in nature. It's the kind of stuff, in fact, that we try not to think about. And it's certainly not what we anticipate hearing on a Sunday morning when we come to church. But this passage is filled with more than just unsettling images. Something more is happening under the surface. In fact, something big is happening. John the Baptist, as you know, has a very special role to play in redemptive history and scripture. His purpose was to pave the way, uh, to clear the path, to be a foreshadower for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. And he was. But in these verses, John the Baptist is murdered. We see him die an irrational death before men. And his body is laid in the tomb. Does that sound familiar? And then there's this whisper of resurrection in verse 2 because Herod thinks that John has been raised from the dead. So you can see how all this typifies and foreshadows Jesus. Now, the theme that we see emerging from these verses is the high price of truth and the great cost of sin. In verses 1 through 12, first, the high price of truth. John confronts Herod uh, for taking his brother's wife. Uh, The gospel of Mark chapter six really opens this story up even more in more detail. But what happens is, is that Herod takes his brother's wife and John the Baptist calls him out for this. He says in verse four, it is not lawful for you to have her. And that the very saying of that word uh, to Herod cost him his life, the high price of truth. Question, uh, would you die for Jesus. You know, as I was thinking about that, would I die for Jesus? I, I would dare say that most of us would like to say that we would. Given the grace, given grace from God, most of us would like to say put into a position, we would have grace in that moment and that we would have the grace sufficient to say, yes, I would die for Jesus. But let me ask you a second question, a harder question. Would you tell the truth about something if you knew that telling the truth about that thing would end up in your death or see because that's a harder question because i mean generically we would say we would die for jesus but how many of us would try to find a way around the truth or to evade the truth or to fudge a little bit in order to save our lives or or maybe just maybe not just be outright maybe not outright lie 
but you know, just sort of be a little bit elusive, a little bit deceptive about a situation in order to save ourselves. You see, this passage confronts us with what we face in our culture today. It confronts us with the cowardly way that we redefine or soften the truth. It confronts our cultural relativism. It confronts our need for affirmation and approval and our willingness to, yes, hide the truth if it's expedient to our cause, if it means being accepted by others. Because we know, and you know, we all know, and we have experienced this, that telling the truth can be very costly. You can lose a friend. You can lose your job. You can even lose your life. And sometimes we hold back on the truth because we don't want to lose influence. We don't want to lose the position that we have gained in life, in society, in the workplace. I mean, wouldn't it have been more strategic, think about this, for John the Baptist to pick his battles a little a little better? I mean, couldn't he have just said, look, I mean, I have this relationship with Herod and he's an unbeliever and I have a phenomenal opportunity to minister the gospel of Jesus to him and I don't need to burn my bridge with him so fast, you know? And I mean, I don't want to lose my platform with Herod. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold back on speaking to him about this whole issue uh, of taking his brother's wife because, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, after all, I'm just trying to be wise as a serpent. Harmless as a dove, right? I mean, couldn't he have gone down that path? I mean, how fast can we justify cowardice in the name of spirituality? No, we just couch it in terms of missions, right? No, I'm just I'm just a wise missionary. Maybe you're just a complete coward. Maybe you're not a missionary at all. But John, on the other hand, he loses his life for telling the truth. Because John was a prophet and he spoke the truth and he unashamedly preached repentance, John chose to tell the truth to a man, think about this, who had control over his destiny. Notice who he's speaking to. He's speaking to Herod Antipas. This is Herod the Great's son. When Herod the Great died, uh, so at the beginning of Jesus' birth, his kingdom was split into four parts and given to one of his sons. And this Herod is the ruler over the northern area, the ruler over the Galilean section where Jesus was doing most of his ministry. So think about it. John isn't just confronting uh, some dude on the street. John isn't confronting his neighbor. John is confronting the most important man in Palestine. And he's doing that from prison, knowing that if he ticks this guy off, it's ballgame. So he knows full well the stakes are very high. And yet does he shrink Does he, is he a coward or what does he do? He comes out and he confronts Herod and it cost him his life. And here we see the high price of truth. But we also see the great cost of sin. And my guess is this is the most dysfunctional family in the Bible. I would, uh, I I challenge you to find a more dysfunctional family in the Bible than the Herodian dynasty. Uh, history tells us the following things. Not only was Herod the Great into polygamy, uh, we have documentation of ten wives, but he was also a violent man. In fact, just prior to his death in 4 BC, uh, he became almost insanely suspicious and he murdered member after member of his own family until there became a Jewish saying that it's safer to be Herod's pig than one of Herod's sons. So there you have it. Herod grew up with the Herod in Matthew 14 grew up with several stepmoms, an aloof, uninvolved, sexually deviant and murderous father. So I wonder what will happen to this Herod. Maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking, like father, like son. I mean, friends, there is such a thing as generational sin. Sinful habits that get passed down from one generation to the next, modeled from one generation to the other. And and maybe you come from an unbelievable amount of brokenness and generational sin. And your calling, one of your great callings in life is to drive a stake into the ground and break that cycle by the power and strength of God for your family. And that, that would be your great legacy to leave behind is that beyond trusting in Jesus, you're saying we are going to stop this cycle 
of substance abuse and alcoholism and and sexually deviant behavior and no education. And we're going to stop this. And for the glory of God, we are going to change things. And and maybe some of you are in that position. And that's a, a great place to be at. This is this Herod in Matthew 14 was a mess. According to Mark 6, 17, we know that Herod Antipas married Herodias. Uh, that was his brother Philip's wife. That's what John rebukes him here in verse 18. Philip was his brother. Uh, this is a twisted up mess. But here, here, it goes something like this, okay? Just try to grab a hold of this drama, this family dysfunction, okay? It goes something like this. Herod had another brother, a uh, half-brother named Aristobulus. Uh, his daughter, Aristobulus, had a daughter named Herodias, okay? Herodias married her half-uncle Philip. Okay, so anyway, Herod decides to visit his brother Philip while he's in Rome. And while he's there, according to Josephus and other historians, he falls in love with his brother Philip's, with his brother uh, Aristobulus's daughter, Herodias, and his brother Philip's uh, wife. So he wrecks his own marriage in favor of taking his brother's wife, who happens to be his niece, so Herodias decides to marry another uncle for the second time. In short, Herodias has married two different uncles, and Herod has ruined his first marriage in favor of marrying his niece. That means not only did he commit adultery, but he did it with his niece. This is a first century episode of Jerry Springer. It's awful. I mean, that's why I said this is as dysfunctional as you can get. Could it be worse? Name another family in the Bible that's more dysfunctional than this. Let's apply this about the high cost, the great cost of sin. Uh, note the seductive and enslaving nature of sin. For Herod, the beauty of a teenage girl and the lust of his flesh were all that it took to cast aside his fear of God, any respect for God's law, the insights of his community, the integrity of his political office, and the care and consideration of his own wife, his friends, his reputation, his body, his soul, and everything else. What a fool he was. And what's even sadder is that I bet everyone close to Herod, I bet all of his mates, I bet all of his friends, I bet all the guys in, the, in his executive team, I bet all those guys just left him in his sin. I bet no one even cared about his godless and destructive behavior except for the fact that it hurt them selfishly. But did anybody else care to confront him? Did anybody else have the courage to stand in front of him and call him out for the sin? So in the second place, we see this. We see the courage of John. We see, we all see sin like this. And we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong, but nobody wants to talk about it. And where's the courage to look a friend in the eyes and tell him in love that they are in sin? Where's the integrity? And friends, this is especially egregious in the church. When public sin is left unchecked and unrebuked and soul care is not taking place. When the fear of man is a stronger impulse than the fear of God. And I would say churches like that are in big, big trouble. We must be willing to confront sin like Nathan did for David. The third thing, consider the power of the conscience. I mean, think about it. When John gets word that some guy named Jesus is doing miracles in the wilderness, he becomes afraid. And so in verse 2, Herod is convinced, he's actually convinced that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. His conscience is bothering him so much at this point that that he has despised, his conscience is speaking to him. He knows that he has despised John's counsel. He's murdered a man of God and that there would be a day of reckoning for him. And And Herod is is trembling. He's trembling. In fact, he's created a scenario in his own mind where he thinks that John the Baptist is like a ghost walking around who's come back from the dead. He's scared out of his mind. His conscience is massively troubled. Every man has a conscience that either excuses him or accuses him. And Herod's conscience is deeply accusing him. J.C. Ryle says this, Men find it easier to imprison a preacher than to listen to his sermon and voice of conviction in their hearts. God's witnesses may be killed, but their testimony often lives and works 
long after they are dead. And it's working. It's working on Herod. So if you're here this morning as a non-Christian, then I want to challenge you with this thought. Do not sin against your conscience. So Herod was a non-Christian. And yet Herod had a conscience. And yet Herod's conscience bothered him. But what if Herod would have listened to his conscience early on? My challenge to you is this, is that do not sin against your conscience. When you know something is wrong, that is God's merciful design in your life. And and you are to deal with your sin, not by suppressing the guilt and the shame that you feel, but you are to deal with your sin by taking that real guilt and that real shame to Jesus and asking him to forgive you forever and to wipe those sins off of your record. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died to cancel your debt, to forgive you and to reconcile you to God. And that's the great hope of the gospel. And that means that you don't have to keep suppressing sin. You can actually just bring it all out into the open and ask God in his kindness to to mercifully expunge that in Jesus name. So consider in the fourth place how quickly the pleasure of sin turned into a complete nightmare for Herod and his family. Consider the progressive nature of sin for a moment. Things got out of hand very quickly. In verse 22, uh, Philip and Herodias' daughter uh, in, uh, in, in verse 22 of, excuse me, of Mark 6 especially, uh, Philip and Herodias' daughter Salome dances before Herod. So history tells us that Herodias probably cannot be any more than 12 or 13 years of age. At this time. So the whole thing is extremely disturbing. Not only does she dance before Herod, but her dance pleases him. And besides all the food and music and dancing, there appears to be intoxication and great measures of it. Herod is lit. And after the dance, he says to this teenage niece, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. And Mark tells us even up to half my kingdom. So he throws out a completely rash and insane offer to this teenage girl because she dances in front of her uncle. Half his kingdom for a dance from a 12-year-old? Are you serious? The foolishness of this promise is beyond reason. The shamefulness of this night. Herod is drunk. He's disinhibited. A degrading mother offers her daughter as an exotic dancer before her husband. The outlandish promises of Herod, his stupid and unreasoned fear of breaking a wicked promise in front of his buddies, or the grisly image of a teenage girl handing her mother the freshly severed head of a prophet of God while her young blood-soaked hands are defiled forever. Can you feel this? This is an absolutely insane moment in Scripture. And it's where sin takes people. This is what happens when the Word of God falls, as we saw last week, on rocky soil. Initially, it may produce gladly entertained, but half-hearted convictions. A willingness to hear a little bit at first had become eventually complete and utter gospel deafness. Close my ears to it. I do not want to hear it. Herod had a window of opportunity. He had a prophet of God in his back door. He could have repented, but now the window of opportunity had closed on Herod. Now the voice of the preacher who so lovingly urged him to repent was silenced. His tongue would no longer speak words of conviction. And to behead him, to behead him was a guarantee that he would forever be silent, right? And like a sheep that was led Before the slaughter, John the Baptist, like Jesus, did not open his mouth, but he gladly received the reward of his faithfulness at Herod's party. I love this. Joseph Hall says, Oh, happy birthday. Not for Herod, but for the Baptist. Now John enters into his joy. The blessed forerunner of Christ said himself, I must decrease, he must increase. Indeed, John decreased, was decreased, but in glory he was increased. For one minute's pain, he received endless joy. Isn't that an awesome thought? 
He, he was the forerunner to Jesus, which is why Herod was so troubled in his conscience, thinking that perhaps Jesus was John the Baptist. But he wasn't. Oh, the sin of, of Herod. His great sin was not the rejection of John. His great sin was not even the beheading of John. His great sin was the rejection of the one that John came to proclaim. His real sin was the rejection of Jesus, of the Messiah. And friends, for some of you, the, the window of opportunity is closing. Every time you hear the word of God is preached, it brings with it a moment, a moment of opportunity. The call to repentance is a call to stop what you are doing and to start following the one who made you for himself. And that's the call that stands before you every time you hear the word of God. How much time do you think you have? If you are here this morning, how many times do you think you will hear a preacher's voice? Is that an infinite number of times? Have you perhaps heard half of the sermons that you will ever hear in your life? Are you nearing the final tenth? Or is this the last percentile of pleas that you will hear from a servant of God? I do not know the answer to that question. And you better realize that you don't either. Well, the chapter continues with two major miracles. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then he walks on water. Uh, Jesus is demonstrating here that nothing is impossible with him. In feeding the crowd, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his sustaining grace. He's saying, I will care for you. But in walking on water, Jesus is teaching his disciples about his preserving grace, that I will protect you. And the point of both miracles is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God and worthy of all worship and allegiance. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, then you will exercise faith. The question is not, do you have faith? The question is, is that the, the point is you will exercise it. You will be called in your life to exercise faith because God will force your hand. One way or the other, you will do it. Now, you might be one of those people that has it all planned out, right? I mean, you're, you, you got the calendar, you got everything worked out, you've got your, your, your year set, you've got all your contingency plans in, in a line. So if something happens, you've already foreseen the future problem and the way we're going to deal with that problem. But sooner or later, you will discover, and I'm sure you have already, but you'll keep discovering, that you do not control your health. You do not control the child who becomes prodigal. You do not control the providences and circumstances of your life. And God will force your hand so that if you're a believer or a follower of Jesus, you will feel your total dependence and you will learn to trust him. And it's it's one of the purposes of these miracles. They prepare us to trust God even when life hurts. So let's look at him. First, let's just skip over to the last scene, verses 22 through 33, where Jesus tells one of his disciples to walk on water. And in this, we see Peter uh, is an example of what every Christian is like. And Jesus is teaching his disciples about his presence with us in the uncertainty of life. And, and that's huge. That's huge for us. And one major lesson I want you to take from these verses is this is that the condition of your faith will be determined by the focus of your faith. The condition or health of your faith will be determined by what you're looking at. And and we see this very clearly in these verses. What are you looking at today? What what are you focusing in on this morning? I, I didn't say what should you be looking at. I'm saying what are you looking at? Now, in the setup for this narrative, we find that Jesus... Verse 22, this is really interesting language, made his disciples get into the boat. Notice that. Why is that? Why did he make them get into the boat? There seems to be a, a frenetic pace, a frenzy, a hurried, just get in the boat. Here, get in the boat. What, what's going on here? Well, I think three things that emerge that I can see from the text. One, Jesus wanted to escape the crowd uh, with his disciples and get some rest. Mark tells us that. He says that Jesus wanted to get rest. Number two, I think this is... Another thing that's there sort of under the surface is that Jesus wanted to give opportunity to think about what just happened in the feeding of the 5,000. So 
Jesus is saying, in, in essence, before you get distracted about what I've just done in feeding 5,000 people, I want you to get in the boat and just savor what just happened. And I was just thinking about this. Is make, make note of this. One of the reasons why I think we keep going through the same stuff that we go through over and over is that we don't savor the lesson. We, we just don't savor them. What just happened? Just think about this. You, you just passed out food for thousands of people with two fish and five loaves. And, and the, the, the great point there is savor that moment. Just soak up that moment. Number three, I think Jesus wanted to be alone and pray and commune with God. Verse, uh, verse 23 tells us that. Jesus expresses his desire and need to get alone to a quiet place and pray. This is the same impulse that we see in verse 13. Jesus wanted to get to a private place with no interruptions and pray. And there are some lessons in that for us. Number one, uh, in times of trial, we should do what Jesus did. Get alone. Just get alone. You can't get this kind of soul work done with your kids running around and with you moving around from place to place all throughout the week, just so busy, if you don't stop and get alone with God. And, I, and I'm saying just once a day, find that moment in that day to just shut everything off and get alone with God. There is no person in this room that cannot do that. There is no person that's too busy to shut everything off once a day and get alone with God. And if you are, then you're just too busy. And you have deprioritized Jesus in your life. And you need to reprioritize Jesus in your life so that it's clear that he is the most important thing to you. Make sure you clear your schedule to get with Jesus. And, and it's an issue of priority. Do not fail to pray. Number two, and how great is this, is that we discover that Jesus is praying for us. So when the disciples are in the boat, where's Jesus? Jesus is up on the mountain praying. And here they are in all this distress and in all this trouble. And Jesus is praying for them. And when you fail to pray, it's great to remember that Jesus is praying for you. While the disciples are being tossed around in the middle of the sea, Jesus is on his knees and he's praying for them. So examine your trial this morning in light of that. Go ahead and name that trial that you're thinking of right now. Think of that thing that you're going through and know this, that you can look at that trial differently when you know that the Son of God is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for you about that. He is ready to give you strength at every moment of the day. He is ready to supply the Spirit of God with His power and with His strength to enable you to endure what you are going through. And that leads me to the third application here is that Jesus is with you. When Jesus approaches them on the boat, Jesus walks up. He does not leave them in distress. He walks up to them in the middle of the night and they're afraid. And what does Jesus says? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. In fact, in Greek, uh, it's much stronger than that. In Greek, it says, Jesus says, take heart. I am. Ego a me. That same phrase. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am that I am an illusion from the Old Testament. He says, I am, echoing God's word to Moses. I am that I am is here. Jesus calms his disciples by giving them a greater revelation of himself. And isn't this how God works with us? God uses trials in our lives to reveal something about himself. And God reveals his character and his nature in ways that we could never learn or discover if we were not in the midst of a storm. In the middle of the storm, the presence of Jesus becomes so real. And Jesus is with you, especially felt when you are in the storm. And finally, number four, Jesus strengthens your faith with his presence. Another beautiful thing that we see here. So the presence of Jesus actually does something. This, this isn't like, oh, well, Jesus is here, and so it's nice to see you again, Jesus. It's like Jesus is here, and everything changes. When Peter saw Jesus walking in the water, he wanted to walk. When Peter looks at Jesus, his faith becomes strong. He wants to step out of the boat. He even initiates it. He says, Jesus, if this is really you, then command me to step out on the boat. And Jesus says, okay, step out of the boat. And he does. And he starts to walk. 
Why? Why? Where did he get the faith and the strength to do such a thing? He got the faith and the strength to do such a thing because Jesus is present. Jesus is there. Jesus is real. And his felt presence makes a tangible difference in your life to your faith at that moment. And so he looks. And then what happens is Peter looks at the wind and the waves. And what else, what, what changes? Everything changes. He begins to to take his eyes off of Jesus onto the circumstances of life, and he begins to sink. And that's because the condition of his faith is determined by the focus of his faith. When he takes his focus off Jesus and onto the circumstances, he's in trouble. When he knew that Jesus was with him, he knew he could join Jesus on the water. Notice the strength of his faith. And how good is it for us to remember that while we don't have the strength to step out and we think, man, this is a mountain. There is no way I can tackle this. There's no way. How good is it to know that it's not our strength to begin with? And so when we step out, we're stepping out on the strength of Jesus and Jesus is with me. Therefore, stepping out is not really a problem because it never was about me to begin with. The stepping out issue that the mountain is is able to be climbed not because i've achieved a certain certain level of success in life and i can hike the mountain the mountain is able to be uh climbed because jesus is there and he's the one who gives us the strength and each of us are facing our own issues maybe family issues or work issues or health issues or whatever but the point of the story is not that jesus gets you out of the storms of life Okay, that's not the point of this passage. Now, it is true that Jesus does take you through the storms of life. But I want to be really clear. The point of this passage is not that Jesus gets you out of the storms of life. The point of this passage passage is that Jesus gets in the boat with you in the storms of life. His presence is with you in the midst of the storm. Jesus didn't come to give you a storm free life. He came to walk with you through this life and save you for the next And in him, our victory is secure. And the next thing you know is that while you're in the middle of this storm, the next thing you know, you're going to be on the shore of eternity. And Jesus will have taken you there. In fact, I love the way that Count John ends. It just says Jesus got in the boat and immediately they were on the shore. That's what it says. So it's like Jesus shows up and it's like it's fixed. It's fixed. Now, Jesus will walk with you through that. But eventually what I'm saying is this life is so short. We're going to be on the shore of eternity. And this is coming to an end. So verse 32, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. That is the first time the disciples ever use that language about Jesus. To say he's the son of God. The storm stills. The disciples understand understanding of Jesus reaches a new high. And the climax of this story uh, is not the stilling of the storm. The climax of the story is not deliverance from the storm, but it's the confession and worship of the disciples. Truly, you are the son of God. So when a storm comes, focus your faith on Jesus. The condition of faith will be determined by the focus of your faith. Get alone and pray and remember these three things. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is with you. And Jesus strengthens your faith. Well, we've seen Herod as an example of what every lost man is like. We've seen the effects of sin. But we've seen the high price of truth. We've seen Peter, an example of what every struggling Christian is like. And and finally, we see Jesus, an example of what every man is needs verses 13 through 22 verse 13 says when jesus heard what had happened now that's a reference of course to the death of john the baptist when the disciples go and they tell jesus what had happened that john the baptist had been killed and murdered uh this affects jesus it affects jesus so much that john was not only the cousin of jesus but he was the forerunner the one who came to prepare the way, John, was the, was, was the close of an era. Think about this. The last of the Old Testament prophets. And so when he was murdered, not only did a prophet die, but an entire era came to a close. And Jesus lost his cousin and dear friend. And so we can understand in verse 13 why Jesus wanted to be alone. Why he wanted to get to a quiet place and mourn and grieve the loss of his cousin and dear friend. 
Think about that moment. However, because of the height of popularity and all these crowds pressing in on Jesus, they keep following him and Jesus can't get away from them. Even in his moment of grief, it's like, man, just give me some space. I need to grieve here. And have you ever had that feeling of wanting, of wanting to just get away, to just get alone? And, 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 and everywhere you turn, people are like asking something from you. And I need this and I need that. And it's like you can't get away. You can't. And so we get upset in situations like that. And we say things we shouldn't say. And we, we say rude things to people. And we tell them we don't have time for them. And we tell them our schedule is booked. And we don't have any more energy left. And we push them away. And Jesus, of all people, had the right to do that. And he could have done that. And Jesus could have just disappeared from their midst and taken himself into a solitary place. But is that what Jesus does? No. Jesus, in the moment, sees their compassion. And that compassion takes over and hits overdrive for Jesus. And we see this in verse 14. He looked upon the crowds. And when he saw them, he had compassion on them. This is what our Lord is like. Even when he needs to grieve and mourn and be alone, he puts others first. And we see Jesus doing three things here. Specifically, he's he's hurting, as I indicated. He's healing others and he's helping. And he's helping three things. He's hurting. The word grief is not used. The word pain is not in the text, but it's clearly implied. As soon as Jesus heard that his cousin had been murdered, he wants to withdraw. He wants to grieve. Remember that Jesus is God, but he's also 100% man. He hurt. He hurts. He's in the midst of pain. And in the midst of pain, he performs one of his greatest miracles. So make note of this as you go throughout your week. Be careful of letting your pain paralyze you from ministry. Often it's the pain of life that gives you an increased opportunity and effectiveness in ministry. Second thing is Jesus' healing. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. This is amazing. I mean, you just have to appreciate this. These people come to Jesus. They're hurting. Jesus is hurting. He lost his cousin. But instead of thinking about himself, he turns his attention to others. So jot this down. Often healing does not happen until we are busy helping other people heal. Have you ever experienced that? It's like, man, you just want healing. You want somebody to come help you. And you just suffer in that condition. But if you can turn your mind and your heart away from yourself and begin to help someone else heal, often through that process, new life is created in you and new strength. When we lean toward the needs of others, something life-giving takes place in our own hearts And one of the best things you can do when you are depressed and when you are feeling sorry for yourself is to go and sincerely help other broken and discouraged people. The third thing Jesus is doing is he's helping. Verses 15 to 21 show that Jesus helped them. He fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Scholars, as I said, indicate this is probably 12 to 15,000 people. The disciples, they want to send the crowds away. And they said, Jesus, just send the crowds away. Let them go get some dinner. You know, they're trying to show compassion for them. And then Jesus is like, okay, if that's your idea of compassion, I got another idea for you. Why don't you just leave them here and you feed them? And they're like, how can we feed them? We have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus, it's like Jesus is saying, um, you give them something. Another way of saying, act like you believe who I am. Did you not just see me heal those people? Didn't you just see that? Then act like you know who I am. You do believe that I can create food for these people like that, right? Yeah, right. No, these these guys are, they're not thinking that at all. They're not on that plane at all. They're just trying to figure out like what Jesus is talking about. And again, Jesus has to correct them and help them understand, I am Jesus, I am the Son of God, which you are going to say in a few minutes on the boat. I am the Son of God, and I'm going to declare my greatness and power before you. Jesus is constantly teaching his disciples. Now, this miracle is sometimes seen as an illustration of Jesus' compassion for human need. Of course, the liberal interpretation of this is that uh, Jesus um, inspires his disciples to give away their lunch. 
and those disciples, um, their example inspires everybody else to give away bits of their lunch. And so 12,000 people are healed. I mean, come on. I mean, really? So, okay, so what's the, what, what molecules of the water came together, you know, uh, and the parable of the, on the boat story to sort of make that happen? What, come on, it's ridiculous. Of course, Jesus spoke this into existence. I mean, you don't have a problem. If you, if you believe in God at all, then you have no problem believing that God can speak things into existence. Ex nihilo. He can just create things out of nothing. And that's exactly what he did. And so this, this idea that Jesus is just simply showing his compassion for human need. Look, he does have great compassion for human need. But feeding the crowds, Jesus is providing, what he's showing here more deeply, is that he's providing bread for Israel in the desert, which is no doubt a reference to the feeding of the Israelites with manna in the wilderness. Remember when the Israelites were just walking around and then God drops down manna upon them and he feeds them? And it's also a statement, I think, theologically, that Jesus is creating a new Israel. A new Israel out of those who will follow him. Those who choose to follow Jesus. He's creating a new people of God. And the collection of the 12 baskets is no mistake. How many baskets are collected? 12. Right? And how many apostles are collecting the baskets? 12. Application, this is this is not a stretch. This is a basic application. Jesus knows your need. He knows your need. He knows your, that you're going through this trial. And there is a basket for you. There is a basket for each of his disciples left over. And there will be a basket for you, dear friend, tomorrow morning when you wake up. There's a basket for you. And here you are in the middle of this day struggling with whatever it is on your heart. And there's a basket for you tonight. Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to his riches of glory in Christ Jesus. But the main point, this is huge, is not that Jesus came to meet your physical needs merely, but that he has come to meet your spiritual needs. So Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. All right, so here's the main takeaway. The main principle that I want you to take away from this verse is that Jesus came not to give bread, but to be your bread. Jesus came not to give physical things to you, but to be your portion. That's what he came for. Jesus came to the world not to give bread, but to be bread. He did not come into this world to give you things, but to give you himself. Jesus did not come into this world to satisfy your flesh, but to satisfy your soul. Now, he does give physical bread and praise God for that. But that's not the main thing he came to do. We already have enough earthly comforts. We already have a lot of earthly comforts. So I hope that it lands as incredible and massive good news to us this morning that Jesus didn't come to give you more stuff. Jesus came to give you more of himself. Jesus did not come into the world to help you satisfy desires that your natural flesh already craved. No, he came into the world to change your desires so that he becomes the chief object of your worship. But that's not what TBN says. That's not what these TV preachers say. No, they'll, they'll tell you that Jesus came to help you live the abundant life. And by the abundant life, they mean that Jesus came to take, to give you more things that your natural heart and your natural flesh and your natural sinful desire crave. And people think that Jesus came to give them more of that, and he didn't. That's not why he came. That's not what he came for. He came to bring you, in fact, ironically and counterintuitively, to an end of yourself. To a self-poverty. To show you that you have to look to him. And when you look to him, he becomes your ultimate treasure and in life you worship him as your greatest treasure. That's the point of verses 13 to 21. That Jesus came not to satisfy all the cravings of your flesh, but to satisfy your soul with himself as the bread of life. 
Here, here's how a Christian talks. Contrary to what you hear from these TV evangelists, uh, a Christian, a true Christian who loves Jesus talks like this. He says, remember Lamentations 3. He talks like this. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, preaching to self. Therefore, I will hope in him. That's how a Christian talks. Yeah, life is rough. Life is bad. Life is hard. But you know what? I have hope because the Lord is my portion. And that's the focus of this passage. It is on the real power and presence of Jesus. When he steps into the boat with his disciples, they go from fear and absolute trembling to total worship. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. The point of Matthew 14 is not that he has authority to create bread, although he does. Or that he has the power to overcome the wind and the waves, although he does. And all that is true and praise God. The point is that Jesus is with us. He is Emmanuel. Jesus says to you, nothing will separate you from me. You are not alone. God is with you. I will be with you forever. Even to the end of the age. And church, if that's true, then that ought to ignite our hearts in worship this morning. And it is true. So can we just leave here this morning knowing that Jesus is with us? That Jesus didn't come to give you more stuff. He came to give you himself. And there's nothing greater than his sweet, satisfying presence. And when you have that, you have everything you need. He is our portion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Your sweet word, which is so corrective and helpful in changing us and redirecting our thoughts. And I ask that this morning you will take those minds that came in here anxious, troubled, worried, concerned about whatever. And that, that we would just stop and remember that here, here you come walking on the sea, walking on the water. And you say, fear not, I am is here. And that we would trust in you and that our faith would be, would be grounded and that you would be our portion functionally, not just theologically. That we would not just know this about you, but that every morning we would get up and crave and crave the bread that, that always is and will never run out. The bread of life that is our portion from this day forward and forevermore. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.